What is government? To better understand the many invisible ways that government affects our lives, I meet with public sector employees across the U.S. and ask them about their work. I try to understand the reasons behind the bureaucracies, the values behind the politics, and most importantly, the people behind the curtains. I'm Grayson Wright, and this is government. Welcome back, everyone. It's good to have you. In this episode, recorded a few months ago, I talked with Patrick McDonnell, project manager and service designer in the City of Austin's Innovation Office. As with Jessica in the previous episode, Patrick and I met as Code for America fellows in 2016. Unlike most of the people in the fellowship who had a background in the technology industry, Patrick brought to the table years of experience in urbanism and city planning, both of which we explore in detail during our conversation. Like most of my talks with Patrick, even off mic, this one is full of neat little stories and tangents. We loosely follow the course of his career in urbanism, making stops to look at how people are prototyping new ideas in cities, how urban areas change as they grow in size and population, and why public employees should share their stories with the public through social media. Patrick tells the story better than I do, though. So let's jump right in. Mm -hmm. So, welcome, Patrick. Uh, It's great to have you on the show. Um, You are working with the city of Austin. um, Yes. With um, working on a project right now uh, for improving the permitting process yes and you're leading an agile kind of innovation team within the uh, city of austin yeah that's correct um can you tell us what is what are the hot issues in permitting right now (laughs) i mean permitting is super sexy said no one ever (laughs) Um, (laughs) so the hottest topic um in permitting is the same as it here as it is everywhere else it's the idea that it takes forever it takes so long and it's really hard and nobody understands what it is and why do we even have to do this you know it's so much work and um you know i hate the government because they're telling me i can't do stuff mm-hmm. so what kind of things would i need a permit for um everything <laughs> um if you live in a city you know a collection of people that are all in this big organism and we share space together then you have to figure out ways to um, define the space and use the space um, in a way that is conducive to other space use okay so i maybe to uh, make that more simple um, you can't put um, a refinery next to an elementary school yeah. So the way we yeah. Yeah, use space has been defined um, for the entire city. Um, so when you start to think on that scale, then um, um, things like permitting, or permit, things like permits are a regulatory measure that 
helps to define um, those kind of relationships. Okay. Um, which is really difficult for people who own a lot and they have a house on the lot um, because that's my property. Like I own it. Like I signed a deed. I'm paying, you know, for this little swath of land. But really, you have to look at the larger system. And so when you look at the larger system, there's a lot of permits that help guide and direct how everything fits together. So to answer your question in a long-winded mm-hmm. manner, I would say that if you're going to do anything to your house, if you're a homeowner, you're going to need permits. Um, and that's, you know, mm-hmm. everything from small improvements like changing your windows, um, re- re-roofing your house, um, re-siding, re-bricking. Mm-hmm. So like those kind of um, aesthetic, aesthetically pleasing things to interior remodels. Like if you change the floor plan of your house, um, then you have to get a permit because that's a structural, a structural issue that you have to deal with. So that seems odd to me. I would think that since it's my own house and sure. it's not, I would think it wouldn't really affect other people living in the city as long as I kind of keep on my land and build it like architecturally sound. Again, whatever. you're living in a city with a lot of other people, so it's not just your land. Um, and anything that's built in a city has to be up to building code standards, mm-hmm. international building code standards. Right. So. Um, your house was built to administer to these standards and when you change it they have to again Mm -hmm. administer to those standards so yeah yeah that makes sense that goes back a bit to the conversation I had last uh, episode with Jessica Cole Mm -hmm. uh, talking about why building codes exist and yeah I guess that makes sense Um, especially in more densely populated areas where um, or if you say are renting out your property um you need to protect the tenants and it's all about safety right yeah um yeah building codes came about because of fires right mm-hmm. um i'm sure that's what jessica told you yeah yeah, uh, yeah. because people were like oh i'm just gonna throw together a bunch of materials mm-hmm. it should be fine it's not fine <laughs> they have to um, um this is- it has to pass muster when it comes to um fire safety, structural safety, mm-hmm. these things, these little boxes that we live in can kill people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that's why we're, you know, because we're a city, um, regulating, um, well, we're a city and we're providing a service to citizens. Um, there have to be some kind of measures. There has to be some kind of government governance. Mm-hmm. And these are like, over time we've, um, landed on these set of guiding principles mm-hmm. um, almost in effect laws that help keep us safe it's all about safety just yeah. remember that yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the reasons that I'm super excited to talk to you is because you have a really strong background in urban design and urban planning and you really approach cities and think about cities in terms of like the entire picture of how how people interact with each other in a system and and the balance that that system needs to have how how things play off of one another Um, can you talk about 
I guess, how a bit about your background in urban design and what what it means to design cities. Yeah, I've been I've been in the game for like six years, um, and I denote that as of the time I graduated from. Uh, uh, graduate degree program from the University of Michigan in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to count my schooling, you can add a couple more years. And um, so it's like I've been in the game for eight years, but I would say I've been practicing like out in the real world because school is a, you know, mm-hmm. school is a, a little bubble. Yeah. Um, and you get to do a lot of things, you know, um, uh, within a short period of time, and then are, are graded on a a grading system that you know it's all about the school systems but when you get into the real world everything changes so there's a, a huge leap from academia to the mm-hmm. real world so I've been practicing for about six years and I've had a kind of uh, <clears throat> interesting go at it um, right out of grad school I, I went and worked at the city of Dallas uh, in the urban design office and <clears throat> you know uh, I was it was a it was a pretty um, innovative office in and of itself. It had been started a couple of years before I got there, um, and they were looking at um, a lot of new development was coming into Dallas because they were building a bridge that spanned across the Trinity River. And um, what happens when you build a new piece of infrastructure that um, also draws in um, activity? towards the neighborhood, what happens to that neighborhood? Well, you, what usually happens is it gets gentrified um, and it gets, okay. um, well, I, new development, um, I say usually, um, of course it's kind of speculative, but I would say that the fear in this case was that it was gonna get gentrified. Is that is that the case mostly with um, infrastructure like bridges or new transit systems that bring in new people or do other types of infrastructure also, uh, those challenges like gentrification or risks. Like anytime, that. anytime. Look, cities change constantly, um, and we always talk about like revitalization efforts, right? Um, you want to make sure that the um, lower socioeconomic um, areas of the city, you know, they're improved so that you know quality of life can improve and mm-hmm. that we can have you know nice characters and nice neighborhoods and safe neighborhoods and all that stuff. But anytime you change, any change, to me, even the smallest change, like a, a better bus stop or something, is a step into a world of, let's let's call it gentrification, right? It's just like a, a baby step. Um, and to me, to me it's just, um, any kind of improvement to make something better is, you're changing what was there before. So you, yeah. Um, so I, I would say the gentrification is like on the um, far end of the spectrum where the neighborhood that existed there before has now been um, removed or been um, um, displaced. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of a fear with what was happening um, around this new bridge that was being built in Dallas. So um, when I got there, I started going and doing community meetings with some of these neighborhoods um, uh, in advance of new construction that was coming so we could start to uh, mediate some of those those big swooping changes that would displace communities and neighborhoods so that was my first foray into um, the urban planning world right out the gate Uh, so I got to be on the ground and see what it was like to um, 
you know, work, work within the communities and do a lot of community design. We did a lot of drawing. We did a lot of, you know, moving shapes and lines around, which is um, kind of the fun part of being an urban designer. Um, but then I would also say that we did at least 50%, if not more, working with communities to help them define what they want to see in their own neighborhood and help them define what success looked like in the long term. So that was my um, that was my foundation. That was like pretty eye opening, and uh, I got to see what it was like to be to play the role of uh, government employee, um, and then also have to understand and empathize what it was like to be a citizen who didn't ask for the change to their community, and right. how to how to be able to empathize and listen and um, help them to preserve their own neighborhood um, which is which is the right thing to do which is you don't just displace communities because you want to build something new mm -hmm. you have to take into effect um, or the cause and effect of these kind of decisions that you make um, right. that affect the entire um, that affect the entire city so <laughs> that's that was my start um, <laughs> to this six years and then I um, after that I, I really got in into public spaces and this idea of tactical urbanism and going out and um, changing making small changes to the city landscape and specifically to public spaces to um, create activity and to help define a place and help attract people and activity so I did that for a couple years. Can, can you give an example of that? Because tactical urbanism, I didn't know about until I talked with you about it last year, when uh, probably uh, early after we had met. And it's a really interesting concept and a pretty fun uh, compared to most of the other uh, urban planning activities that go on. But I know you've done a few projects uh, that are tactical urbanism projects um, can you just give some examples of what that looks like sure um, and I might even step back a little bit farther um, because in order to understand tactical urbanism you have to understand urbanism okay um, so I'm gonna give you like a little bit of a history lesson we're gonna diverge a little bit and then we'll come back to the timeline of like um, uh, what my career has been so far but let's go back <laughs> um, I if you want to go all the way back, I think like the, the best examples of urban planning were like Rome, ancient Rome, right? Mm -hmm. um, where they were supporting, where they were doing urban planning. They, they had like master builders, master architects um, who were um, planning and building their cities. And pro at, like at the, high, at the peak of its existence, Rome uh, accommodated two million people, right? They figured out how, they figured out how to transport water. They, yeah. they built the aqueducts and um, they were able to um, build cities around it because they had that kind of infrastructure. Um, so cities have been around. My point is to say that cities have been around for a long time. Um, um, so we have a lot of uh, a knowledge and understanding about them. But as a discipline, like I don't think that the Romans called themselves urban planners, or maybe they did. Who knows? <laughs> but I, 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 like in its most modern form, urban planning started like right around the. 19th century, the turn of the 19th century, um, like some of the early, um, I would say, I would say that it was formalized like uh, in academia. That's when they started having classes and they 
um, started teaching urban planning as a discipline. So if you start at the beginning of the 19th century and we're in 2017, mm-hmm. um, it's 100, let's just say it's 120, 125 years old okay. as a discipline. Um, and over time, you had to go and study and become an expert. And uh, for the longest time, only people who had a degree were able to make decisions about how to design cities. Right. right? You had to have an expert understanding. Yeah, so, you're not going to hand over a big parcel of land to someone unless you know that uh, you're going to get good results from them. Yeah. Um, yes. I, so, well, well that's... A, what I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that you had to go through a level of schooling, right? And there was like mm-hmm. this little club... Okay. Um, of of people who had this understanding mm-hmm. um, that could then practice designing cities. Right. Um, all that. I wanted to frame it that way, like going like way back, mm-hmm. and then coming to more modern a more modern understanding of urban planning to now tactical urbanism, <laughs> um, which is completely the opposite. Right. It's completely yeah. democratic. So how does tactical urbanism kind of break the existing paradigm? Um, well, to continue on the timeline a little bit, um, I don't, I I would actually place the emergence of tactical urbanism, um, I think it's been like 10 years now, there's this thing called Parking Day, you ever heard of, you ever heard of this? I haven't, Uh, there's a company called Rebar out of San Francisco. Okay. They've since, like, become another company, I think they got, um, acquired or, um, something by Gell, Gell Studios, so. Okay. Just know that they start in San Francisco. What so Parking Day is this event where um, um, this team, uh, the studio, decided to go and feed a meter, a parking meter, for a day, oh, and wow. they took took up the space of the meter and put like um, astroturf or grass down and put lawn chairs out and just transformed the parking space. Wow! Um, you know, for an yeah. afternoon to to. Um, to set it off, to set off the idea that um, these spaces aren't being used all the time. Like, what else could we use them for? Right. Like, how do you take the emphasis off the car? Like, mm-hmm. how can you make this more pedestrian friendly? How can you make this more uh, amenable to the citizen? So, right. So, for the cost of feeding a parking meter for a day, probably under 10 bucks, mm-hmm. you can, and like, whatever, you can experiment with. An entirely new use of this space, mm-hmm. um, and see how that changes how people interact with uh, yeah. with the street or with the of, shops on it. Right, yeah, especially if it's in front of a shop, right? Because then that maybe attracts business, mm-hmm. um, and and it creates a, a place that is not just the street and not just the the building itself, but it creates like a third place to hang out, right? Yeah, and that's interesting because now walking down like the Mission District in San Francisco, Valencia Street, or um, uh, in Seattle, they have a bunch of these as well. Uh, you see a lot of these parklets That's right. yeah. that are the width of the, uh, the car is parallel parked on either side of it, but they're like often out front of coffee shops or something where uh, they just give people a place to sit outside and watch other people walking by. Uh, and it really, um, I don't know, it transforms the space in a, a way that is really valuable, I think. And that just makes people, like, 
think about the street in a different way. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the basic the basic understanding of urban planning is is, is the street. It's mm-hmm. a basic unit of urban planning. Uh, the street, the block, the neighborhood, right? Um, and when you have active streets, um, then you have an active city. I mean, yeah. it's almost a one-to-one comparison. Um, but just to go back a little, just to uh, finish the kind of the timeline, the history of yeah. Parking Day, um, th- that one event got covered uh, by a news outlet um, and was it went viral. And that one event turned into a national event, national day, national parking day. So now, like in September, like the third Friday of every month, or a third Friday of every September, or it's one of those Fridays in September, we have a parking day. And so everybody from around the country will, and around the world actually will um, go and set up in a parking space. And it's gotten real creative, like over the years. Like when I was living in Dallas, we actually had a nonprofit. Um, who sponsored Parking Day and got all the permits oh, wow. so that we could do it in Main Street and there, there was like just uh, interventions like four or five blocks along Main Street so um, what, what ends up happening the more you do that kind of thing then it turns into these more permanent fixtures like the parklets you're talking about in San Francisco and Seattle and Austin yeah. um, and that was kind of one of the outcomes right so it's this very low budget low cost thing that you didn't have to be an expert to do mm-hmm. you could just go out and do it on your own and maybe break some rules or maybe play within the rules so it's very tactical mm-hmm. from a, a strategic standpoint um, and you and you create this new typology of, of urban planning and how to use space right so that if you think about that you know which was happened about 10 years ago um, to where we are now and um, there was a lot of pushback to begin with because um, people didn't understand it, they didn't know but now it's just kind of accepted and so there's more of a um, the idea is stuck the idea of tactical urbanism is akin to prototyping or testing new ideas right. and yeah. so when you frame it like that oh, I'm just going to do a pilot I'm mm-hmm. going to do a prototype and see what happens then suddenly all of the fears and woes and the, you know, the fear of risk, mm-hmm. um, the risk averse nature of cities kind of like fades away because it's just a, you're just testing something. Right. Yeah. So that's where we are now. If you go back to like the very formal understanding of urban planning and like this massive scale and having to accommodate um, big civilizations, big cities um, in ancient Rome to modern day planning where you had to be an expert and have a degree in all this stuff in order to be able to even put pen to paper. And then now, in the last 10 years, it's become democratized and you don't have to be an expert, you don't need any degrees, you just have to know how to get a special events permit. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a super important uh, kind of terminology and language for cities to have is to be able to think about things in terms of very lightweight experiments and prototypes and uh, it's. It seems like cities are one of the more difficult places to pull that off, just because they, like, you can't pause a city to try out, um, try out something. You need to observe your prototypes and your experiments in the context of the people working and living and 
walking their dogs around it. Um, and so these lightweight uh, interventions, interventions, yeah. and tactical strategies. Um, that's a, a really great movement, I think. One, it's really hard to iterate on a, a building. Like it's a physical structure. Like how do you? Um, you can't really. You know, build it and then tear it down and build it back up again. Yeah. You kind of like you have to build it and it stays for a, a while, a couple, couple decades, <laughs> yeah. yep. um, maybe a couple centuries. But yeah. So going back to uh, your personal career, you uh, had a background in urban planning, uh, spent some time with tactical urbanism mm-hmm. um, in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you go after that? Um, yeah, so just to recap, like what that meant, like what the tactical urbanism, um, what my time looked like, um, I tried to start a nonprofit, um, around public spaces, like public, you know, just doing this kind of stuff professionally. So, um, um, gave that a go. Uh, I think it was, it was a, an idea that was ahead of its time or at least, Ahead of my pocketbook, um, <laughs> it wasn't very sustainable from a financial standpoint. Um, it was a good learning experience in order, like what it takes to start up a business and try to you know go out and get clients and try to um, have to find work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to pull that into the conversation a little bit, and then I started doing some freelance stuff, which was like actually teaching students about urbanism, like in in summer camps, and then. Um, Daddy had to pay the bill, so uh, while I was starting a company, I got real good at um, doing social media and marketing. So I started consulting on that a little bit. Um, yeah, it's it's real. Like when you start your own business and you're one of two people or the only person, you become everything. You become um, the CEO, the creative director, the visual designer, the marketer, the business dev person the mm-hmm. yeah so you have to play a bunch of different roles and I um, I, it was it was good because I got to to see like all of those roles have to come together in order to try to um, to venture down this path of um, creating a a firm or a studio that was about um, these kind of tactical um Interventions in this this new way of doing urban planning, right? Um, so yeah, that I just wanted to point that out and um, talk because it, it's a thread that keeps showing up mm-hmm. like throughout the next few years. Um, so anyway, uh, I think so. I was in Dallas for three years, um, and I was freelancing in. Um, 2015 2014 2015 is when I was like ah I think I should probably go get a job again like (laughs) financial stability is the thing um and I was living with my folks at the time which they loved you know they were fine with it um they're also kind of like hey (laughs) so when you get a new next that it's always good to have the added pressure of your folks like yeah asking you those tough questions yeah so you're a millennial ahead of Ahead of your time. <laughs> oh, I don't even know what a millennial is. Yeah, I didn't, um, I'm something, I guess. Um, 
But yeah, no, like the the economy. That's also worth noting. The economy was not great when I graduated in 2011, so it was pretty hard to get a job, and it was still like recovering. Um, so I definitely felt the effects of that. Um, plus, I was a little bit stingy in what I wanted to do, so I was very, you know, that also kind of kept me from, um, you, you know, just jumping back in uh, the nine to five and finding a job that would pay the bills. But um, uh, I guess my stinginess paid off. Like I in 2015, uh, I landed a job with um, an arts nonprofit in Greensboro, North Carolina, okay. and they got a they got a, a sizable grant from Art Place America, and they were going to do public spaces projects. They had never done it before. They were um, so they needed somebody with an urban design background and who had done this kind of stuff and understood how to navigate city processes to um, um, to help guide artists who wanted to create these these physical artworks, these design build artworks. So okay. I moved out moved out into uh, the Piedmont Triad, good old Greensboro, um, third largest city in North Carolina. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that was a really nice that was a really nice um change of of scenery and change of thinking and you know just it was a smaller it's a lot smaller than Dallas. Yeah. Dallas is like one point two million, one point three um, Greensboro was, or is, three. Uh, it's the third largest city, so it's. Um, I think it's like three hundred eighteen thousand. That might not be right, but just Google it. Find yeah. on Wikipedia like what the actual numbers are. But yeah, so we're taking a lot of divergence here, but sure. I think I think this kind of works. We'll use your your career in, um, in urbanism and urban planning as kind of the the main thread of this entire interview and oh, yeah. um, see how you're thinking about cities changes over time perhaps but uh, one thing that we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. um, and this relates to you're talking about the size of these cities Dallas and um, I'm sorry where was it? Greensboro Greensboro North Carolina mm-hmm. um, you have a way of kind of classifying or ranking cities based on their size mm-hmm. and population density. Yeah. Um, and that was really interesting to me. I hadn't really uh, thought about that too much before, but can you talk a bit about that? Um, by the way, I just Googled Greensboro population. It says 282,586 in 2014. Um, I don't know if they would agree with that. <laughs> um, okay. But... I would say that, um, so I started looking at cities like in terms of population, population density when I, you know, graduated and I, um, came out of school with my urban planning eyes. Like before that, I, you don't pay attention to that kind of stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you don't pay attention to the data, those, those kinds of numbers. But, um, when you do start paying attention to it, all of a sudden, um, uh, there are, Cities that fall into, um, I would guess, I guess I would call them like small, medium, large, extra large, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that helps you get get a sense of um, the scale and the types of amenities that cities have. Um, so the biggest city that we have right now in the United States is New York. New York. Yeah. Do you know how many people are in New York? Oh, um, it's a lot, a lot more than any millions. other city. Yeah, it's eight million. Eight right? million. Okay. 
Wow. And it's so dense, right? Mm -hmm. um, super dense. There's like people on top of people on top of people, and you build like really tall buildings. Um, so that is that is one extreme mm -hmm. uh, in terms of density. And because New York is so dense, um, you have it triggers a bunch of things. You have public transportation. You have good park systems. You have like new types of housing, um, and um, like a, a smaller cities just don't have that, right? There's not a critical mass for that kind of thing. Um, and I started looking into like just I think it was more of like an arbitrary thing in terms of um, I have this kind of a metric of where where I think the critical mass um, phenomenon happens and I think it's uh, at 10,000 people per square mile and okay. I just one of those things like I, I I noticed a shift like once you have that kind of density then that um, that critical mass then d defines actually and determines like okay now you have to have good public transit now you have to have subways now you have to have good bike shares now you have to have um, good bike infrastructure mm -hmm. like all of these things start happening I think there might uh, I've landed on that as a magic number um, but so there's only would that be the difference between a medium and large city for you or um, you, you mean density or or I guess okay so density is a different metric, metric yeah okay so I if we want to talk about the cities that have over 10,000 per square mile there's only six Okay. New York, Boston, Philly, um, San Francisco, uh, Miami, and Chicago. Okay. I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> but if you look at all those cities, um, they have all the things that I talked about, like good, sort of good public transportation. I don't know about Miami. I haven't been to Miami. But all the other ones I've been to, they have good public transportation. They, mm -hmm. uh, they have good housing. They, or, or they have housing that is there to accommodate the population density um, yeah it just it just said like when I was living in Greensboro um, their downtown um, you know they were trying to revitalize their downtown they were trying to or revitalize is a weird and if you were but they were trying to you know get more people downtown and they wanted um, activity and they wanted um, um, you know just like a pop in downtown like you see in a bunch of other mm -hmm. cities and the, my first question was like well, what is the um, like how many how many housing units do you have downtown and it was tiny something like 300 400 housing units like, like you don't have the population like you don't you might have 3,000 4,000 per square mile which is about average right mm -hmm. um, you have to start building more residencies downtown to get that vibe to get the you know the active streets right. um, um, that that then um, create those active cities. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, in smaller cities and with smaller population density, you can see that uh, it's a little bit more desolate, or it's just not um, as as packed as like when you're walking down you know, like streets in Seattle, and there's just right. people bumping into each other everywhere, or you're walking through New York, or like riding the subway, and it's just people on top of people. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, looking at cities, small, medium, large, um, I think for me, population density is like a good indicator um, of the types of amenities that you get. Um, 
after you reach that critical mass threshold, which I think is 10,000 per square mile. Um, but then there's also like area of a city, right? Mm-hmm. Which is another way to look at them. Um, um, and so, yeah, I don't know. That you just, I, you just kind of like I've seen so many cities over the years that I just kind of start to to throw them into these kind of buckets, like. Um, um, yeah. Sorry, I'm. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm trying to trying to think of it from a um. Like what it means to have a, a large city, right? Like. Like L.A. or something, mm-hmm. where the population density is not that great, but it's a giant city and it has a few million people. Right. And usually what I associate with that is just a lot of traffic, a lot of highways, <laughs> a lot of kind of car-based infrastructure. And um, I'm about to head into Houston tomorrow, mm-hmm. um, and I'm expecting pretty much the same thing. It's a pretty spread out city. Um, and they have one of the most striking features is all of their highway infrastructure there. Yeah, so then that goes to the point of like um, uh, land area doesn't necessarily um, um, like the bigger your city is from a land area perspective doesn't necessarily mean that it's um, a, a more urban city, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Okay. I I wonder if you know now I'm thinking in terms of like. The construction of LA or construction of Dallas or construction of Houston and the, these are very car-centric cities and if they will ever attain a density um, that um, puts them in that 10,000 per square mile magic zone I don't know because they're built around cars like they're their yeah. focus is different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting I, I, I'm curious if that prohibits them from reaching that density or if, well, uh, if the tendency for those cities is just to continue to kind of sprawl. Yeah. Ooh. It's interesting. It would be cool to follow up and well, then take you, a look at that. Then you have to really look at like um, the urban areas, right? Like so in Dallas, there's an urban core, which is... I don't know six square miles, mm-hmm. and that play, that that piece of Dallas is very dense. But then all the other suburbans, suburban right. areas around it yeah. are um, are less dense, and then you have a different quality of life, and you have a different way of life, mm-hmm. right? Um, you have bigger lot areas, you have like yards and um, big bigger houses, and <laughs> um, yeah. So it's just a different lifestyle hmm yeah yep cool well it's a neat lens to look at cities here um so we could go one of two ways mm-hmm uh we can continue on with your career uh-huh um oh there's more to the story that. um I, I mean so I guess the initial um so we're getting to the permitting piece, right? And like the way that I'm approaching permitting here in Austin and how it's more of an agile technique. So I think there's a, 
we can like, kind of go down the timeline and see what happens from Greensboro to Austin. So there's a couple more years. Cool. Yeah. Um, All right, so let's pick back up with um, Patrick in, I guess, what year is this? So 2016. Okay. Which is the year we met. Yep. Yeah. With Code for America Fellowship. Code for America Fellowship. All right, so you were working with the city of Long Beach. Mm-hmm. Um... um well, maybe I should I should also like talk about how I got to Code for America oh, because yeah. like the transition from urban planning to technology, it, it's not always yeah it's not quite cl- crystal clear. How do you make that jump? Yes. Um, uh, so in 2012, I went to a conference, um, and in St. Louis, and um, I was there with it was like one of those 40 under 40 type deals um 40 for urbanists around the country and um while I was there I met a uh, guy named Spike or not Steven Spiker okay um if that name rings a bell it's because he was one of the co-founding captains of uh, Open Oakland oh yeah yeah and he was wearing he was like repping Code for America back then in mm-hmm. 2012. That was the early years. The early years. Of the civic technology movements. I know. Oh, yeah. And and he started telling me what he's doing. He's like applying code to cities. Like I at first I, I was drawn back. I was like this, this dumb. It's not gonna it's not gonna <laughs> go anywhere. Like nothing's gonna happen with that. Kind of put me off, you know. Um, and then um, I started looking into it more and. Um, it popped up again in 2013, mm-hmm. um, the same conference. Um, somebody else from Code for America, Lou Wong, mm-hmm. was now in this um, in this core of 40 urbanists. I'm like, okay, there's something to this. And Lou Lou also has a background in architecture, so it was it was a little bit more approachable. Like I, he made the jump from architecture to to code. Like he was okay. um, kind of the first um, of of these hybrids that are you know have a urbanist or architect background and are jumping into tech, the tech world. Um, so he, I learned about him and his app that he created, like Street Mix. Which, oh yeah, yeah. Which is, I'll, uh, I'll pop a link to Street Mix in the show notes. Um, but it's a, it's a really neat web tool where you can kind of plan out city streets. And it seems like it um, replaces a lot of work that would be done pencil and paper. Um, and just makes it super efficient to play around with new street layouts. Street sections, yeah. So the the genius of this tool is that um, so what, uh, what StreetMix is, um, just to describe it real quick, is a digital um, form of street sections. Um, street sections are just a common drawing that architects and urbanists have to, to know how to draw. Mm-hmm. And it just shows you the dimensions of if you're looking down the street, like what the buildings are on each side, how many lanes there are, like if there's bike lanes, if there's shrubbery. So it just gives you, it's like cutting a section of a street mm-hmm. and being able to look at it as if you're like in, in Google Maps, just looking down the road and you right. can just see like how it's laid out um, and how it's spatially arranged. So what he and the team he and his team did um, during their fellowship was they created this tool um, which democratizes um, creating street sections because before then you had to you know you had to have AutoCAD 
and you had to have Illustrator um, to be able to um, dimension it correctly or to draw it to scale. Right. Yeah. So you don't have to have any special tools. You just go on a browser and move things around. Yeah. Um, so that caught my attention. I was like, uh, okay, technologists are doing this to urban planning. Like they're, they're pushing this forward. They're, they're democratizing um, the tools and things that we do on our, in our daily lives. Like, there's something to this. Like, and I just couldn't ignore it after that. So mm-hmm. I was hooked basically. Um, and then what followed was just more involvement, like watching the summits online, joining brigade, and then applying for the fellowship. So there was kind of that, um, you know, the seed was planted early, and then it kept kept growing, and I started watering a little bit more until eventually it blossomed to this to this thing um, yeah. where um, all of a sudden my urban planning interests and where technology is taking urban planning or urbanism um, converged. Um, so, yeah, 2016. Um, we get there and, you know, we're all... Um, we all interviewed for kind of interest areas. There's economic development, there's safety and justice, and there's health. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the three focus areas that were we were a part of last year. And um, I was interested in economic development because it's very urban-y. Mm-hmm. Um, economic development covers a lot of different things from a city um, standpoint. And um, what Long Beach was looking for specifically was um, how to help small businesses get, get up and running through city services. And this was in conjunction with um, Startup in a Day, which right. was launched like in the last year of the Obama administration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, like being able to start a business, um, well, all of, all of the tools that to start a business are part of what the city offers mm-hmm. in Long Beach. Um, you have to, you know, you can go get a business license, um, or you have to get a business license if you start a business in Long right. Beach. Um, Do most of are most of these functions? Um, that you need to go through to start a business do most of those fall under permitting uh, mm. or well uh, that one's a license okay um, the permitting comes if you were to try to open like a brick and mortar building okay so it sounds like permitting is mostly around land use or yes. physical spaces okay yes mostly around I would say like 80% right around okay. yes Land, well, yeah, land use, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so, let's see. Yeah, we, we go to Long Beach, um, and, you know, they have this... They're trying to fulfill their requirements for Startup in the Day. They got funding, and they needed somebody um, to um, just make it easier for business owners to use the city services to start up their business. So team that I was on ended up creating a website and a couple of tools that um, made the process easier. Um, and all this time, I'm, I'm working in development services, the development services department, which every city has one. It's, you know, the ground floor of um, where every citizen has to go through if they want to get something permitted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Um, yeah, I spent 
I spent a year studying how Long Beach did it um, and getting to interact with um, the urban planners and the engineers and permit techs that were doing it day to day and having to interpret code and having to um, talk to customers or business owners um, about what they wanted to build, the proposed buildings, like um, what it took to to even start thinking about starting a business and then having to go all the way through the entire permitting process, which can take months and months and months mm -hmm. um, before they even get their the, the final piece, which is their certificate of occupancy, which means that they can open their doors and okay. um, open their business, essentially. Right. Um, so yeah, I spent... It was like super educational, and all this time, like integrating tech into into the city processes, mm -hmm. um, and learning this methodology of like uh, creating something real quick, rapid prototyping, right? Yep. Um, which is uh, working agilely, or working in an agile methodology, which is you know um, doing doing uh, uh, creating a roadmap. Of the entire year and then doing weekly or bi-weekly sprints and mm -hmm. trying to um, accomplish a new f feature for your product or um, just accomplish a, a set of tasks um, every yeah, few well, weeks yeah yeah and it seems like the very similar principles at work between kind of these tactical strategies tactical urbanism and uh, where you're rapidly prototyping and experimenting and a lot of what is uh, what makes the software industry and uh, tech, tech industry so fluid and uh, rapidly changing um, is just the ability to quickly test and change and try out new ideas. Yeah. Um, so if you if you can wrangle it correctly, the two actually go together really well, um, and you can start trying trying out new uh, urban processes implemented in software first and then take those into the real world or vice versa. Um, You're making the connections that I made. Yeah, exactly. Bingo. You know, I, I, the whole, um, the processes that we're doing with technical urbanism, going out and testing ideas and prototyping are the same kinds of uh, processes, or at least conceptually, that you do from a technical standpoint right you rapidly prototype and test things and get user feedback real quick mm -hmm. um, you keep iterating and um, over and over and over right based on what you learn so yeah yeah that there you go that's that's the meat of it all right that's, that's where they overlap um, and so now 2017 it's kind of all converged <laughs> you know um, and and now the role I'm in is agile project manager running these um running these methodologies running agile which is you know setting out a roadmap and then having weekly sprints um making sure that we're standing up and communicating like what we're our, um every day to talk about what we accomplished the day before and what we're doing that day and then also like having weekly retros to talk about what worked and what didn't work and that kind of thing right so yeah pulling it all together nice. using um those methodologies and using those understandings um, to now apply them to the city of Austin, um, which they they haven't had before. They haven't, mm -hmm. like these methodologies just aren't used here. 
Right. And that's not just to say in Austin, but like you know, a lot of other cities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's where the innovation piece comes in, right? Yeah. Because uh, I work in the innovation office, and um, it's just a new way of doing things, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, I was thinking about what the innovation office actually means. Um, it's like a cool little diagram of the, you know, um, like technology. What it's got the, what was that called the? The arc. Uh, yeah, it's like a, it's a graph that shows you know where the early adopters are, uh, okay. the the innovators, the early adopters, and then there's like a huge. Um, so this is an adoption, like shows adoption of technology over yes. time. Yes. Okay. Yes, it's that graph that shows that. Um, okay, I'll find an image and put it, put a link to it. Right. Um, so yeah, I guess in general the the curve right is mm-hmm. um, it starts low um, and it's shallow and then it bulges up in the middle um, mm-hmm. and then goes back down and has a tail end okay. right. So a bell curve. It's like a yeah, it's a bell curve. That's okay. Yeah, it's just a bell curve. Um, okay. But the the people on the front end are the innovators and the um, early adopters, mm-hmm. and then you have like the majority of the population, and then you have your, like your laggards at the the, the tail end. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, like the innovation office is just the people at the the front, like the scouts going mm-hmm. out and trying these new processes first. Okay, that's and, an interesting way to look at it. Is yeah. that those perhaps those people exist uh, throughout a government organization or a city anyway, and uh, innovation teams are simply efforts to group those experimenters into an explicit um, team and get them all in the same room and uh, uh, make that the leading edge of, of development efforts. That's that's a great way to put it. I mean, yeah, it, and I like the, the caveat of explicit or intentional, right? Because mm-hmm. we're doing a lot of experimentation, but we're starting to coalesce into like these focus areas or we have reasons as to why we're doing this. Um, it's not just like go and play and this free for all. There's um, we're trying to get to something. We're trying to um, formalize our processes and help other people adopt them. Right. But we have to. Somebody has to be first. So mm-hmm. yeah, we we are because of the name, I guess, because the innovation office, because we were given that name. We're also given the luxury of being able to be these small intentional. Um, experimental teams that get to go in first and test things out mm-hmm. and that's part of our role right right yeah yeah cool um i want to change track a little bit uh from here on uh, we've caught up to the present yes so it's hard to keep uh, keep going on this sure. but earlier you referenced that uh when you're starting this nonprofit, you got really good at social media Mm-hmm. Um, and this stands out about you. Um, it's just that you are one of the best people that I personally have met at uh, creating a personal brand, uh, publishing a lot of uh, social media, and kind of using social media to document mm-hmm. uh, what you go through today, what you're thinking, what you accomplish. Um, so, uh, do you think there are ways that um, cities or governments or uh, government employees can benefit from the wave of social media or can use this as a kind of communication channel uh, as as a city as a whole? Um, well, um, of course.
course. I mean, yes. I, social media is, is now part of everyday life, and I would actually say it's like the current state of the internet. Like that's, you know, the majority of um, places that we go are Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and um, and then everything is kind of filtered through those those channels. Um, mm-hmm. But um, like I think social media, it it boils down to something more basic. It's not just about advertising or branding or you know getting the message out um what is about getting the message out and it's about documentation but um like this is the way we're doing it now is is in a digital format because we have an, a smartphone and we can you know like all of a sudden media everybody has a media company in their pocket you know mm-hmm. again like another democratization of of a thing that where before you had to have special tools you have to have special degrees so um, I would say that social media is, is in the last five years, you know, the internet's not that old, like the actual internet, like the first website was built in 92 or something. Mm-hmm. So, um, so wow. like 25 years, it's a 20, 25 year old, you know? yeah. it's a, uh, so in, in the last five years, maybe 10 years that we, we now have the opportunity, everybody has the opportunity to go out and document and observe um, and then relay that understanding back to an audience or back to everybody else like um, it's just the medium that we're that we're working in like the smartphone is a medium that we can deliver our um, information and knowledge to people around us but if you look back at like some of the famous urbanists um, um, William White he was doing documentaries in the 70s like he, um, the social life of small public spaces. Social life. Uh, okay. I, I was, that may or may not be the title, but something to that effect, right? Mm-hmm. So he was doing documentaries and doing commentary and like observing spaces, um, okay. and putting them out um, as studies so other people could view his observations about the built environment. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane Jacobs wrote a book called "The Death and Life of Great American City." Mm-hmm. Um, so they use their format of the time to um, to get their message out and and storytell, right? Mm-hmm. So they were they were doing social media just in their own medium. Like they had to write a book or they had to do documentaries. We now live in an age where we can do all that stuff on on the luxury of a smartphone. Right. So I'm just kind of in in a way I'm following in their footsteps and putting my observations out to the world. Okay. Um, by constantly documenting them, um, yeah, yeah. Like somebody, I heard a good phrase one time: "If you want to be interesting, be interested." Mm. So I like that. Um, that's how I think about my observations. Okay, I'm interested in a lot of different things, so I want to give people an insight into mm-hmm. how I'm processing this stuff. You know, Jane Jacobs. Unfortunately, we don't have like her notes. We don't have. It would it would have been great to see what she was seeing on a day to day basis. Instead, we get this, like these really vivid stories about what she saw when she was in New York. Mm-hmm. But I want to know all the other stuff. Like I want to. Right. Um, I want to know behind the scenes. I want to know all the you know the mistakes and the things that that happened that weren't um, packaged into this nice into this nice book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that yeah. I'm just following in the tradition of observation, but I'm just doing it with a digital format. So, can, 
continuing on that, if you were able to run essentially a city's uh, public communications department, mm-hmm. um, how would how would you communicate with the public in a city? I would have every single person vlog every single day. Okay. So video blogging, essentially. Video blogging, yeah. And every single person in this within the city. Um. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Sure. Right. Sorry. Within the city government. Yeah. Okay. So, so. <laughs> this is if I if I ran right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like this a lot because uh, personally I see the city of Austin or uh, wherever I'm living in as. A monotonous and ent- or sorry, um, monolithic entity mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they're kind of related. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's hard to notice the people inside working on it. Uh, this is one of my goals with the podcast: is to focus on the individuals um, who make up government, uh, and often their stories are much more interesting and much more. Uh, relatable and human um, than the city as a whole because the cities move very slowly um, and it's not always clear what is going on uh, what work people are doing um, right um, there's a lot of good stories out there mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah the, the more I, it's just a matter of like being open and showing what you're doing showing your work um, like, like vlogging is just documentation mm-hmm. you know it's not like I'm not producing a reality TV show like I'm not staging things I'm just showing you what what's happening um, and if the the reason I like vlogs is because then you get a daily update you know mm-hmm. you don't have to I don't have to um, say I'm gonna do a project and then show up three months later come out of my hole and say here's the project you're constantly getting um, insights into what I'm doing, right? Um, which is a huge shift in, in the way that cities currently work now, right? A lot of cities function um, in a process that's called um, the waterfall waterfall method. Mm-hmm. Under processes that is called that is it's a waterfall methodology, right? It's like top down. Go do this thing. Yeah. So you get uh, all the stakeholders in the room right. at the beginning, and you lay out the requirements, and right. then you have. You scope designers everything. Designers come in to, um, or wh- whoever, to design a plan that fits the requirements, and then uh, builders or creators, implementers to fill the design, etc. Yeah. Um, and, and then this then, goes back to early software development. Mm-hmm. Initially, it was all done by Waterfall as well. And the problem, I think, with with waterfall in both contexts is just you can't you can't go back and revisit your initial plans with anything new that you learn about your situation. Um, One thing that I've heard it described as is when you start a waterfall process you're committing to not learning anything new for the course of the project. (laughs) Yeah like you you're kind of stuck in your scope of work right? Mm -hmm. Your SOW. which I don't like I, I've been on projects and the week after we start the project the scope of work has already changed 
because you can't really plan for how big or how small something's gonna actually be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, to me, like being able to document things that are happening every day and being transparent about it, and if you know you start with an, a concept um, at the beginning, your scope of work is this concept, and then people are um, involved and in, and can check in and tune in to see what what's happening and where all the changes are and what you know. In Agile, we we have this reporting mechanism like what are the blockers that you have mm-hmm. and people can actually see okay this thing that we thought was going to take an hour actually took four days so right. that that kind of um insights into how we work as individuals and humans and like how city processes are so complex that um saying to somebody you know go fix this and waving a magic wand um isn't actually reality mm-hmm. um because there's a bunch of steps and cities are so complex so um, I think that showing people these insights the daily insights actually um, uh, deters the waterfall methodology right and puts it more into the agile space right yep yeah I like that that's great yeah plus like like we were saying like, there's a lot of people in government that are just not showcased right mm-hmm. a lot of people doing great work um, that are just doing it behind the scenes and never getting the accolades. Like, I think you should be. I think government people are rock stars in the same way that teachers are rock stars. You know, and underappreciated. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those. You know, and I don't. I'm not gonna sit, just gonna sit here and say like it's just one of those things. We have to deal with it. No, we don't. Why? Why? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um. Yeah. Um. I. I love to hear more stories uh, from government about things that are working or things that don't, things that uh, aren't working but should because mm-hmm. like there are bureaucratic processes in place that are uh, outdated or perhaps things where bureaucracy saves uh, saves situations and, I mean, and helps out. I'm just thinking about what it would be like if, um, you know, like all the reviewers, the plan reviewers were vlogging, like all the customers that they met with that day Mm -hmm. and people could actually see that, oh my gosh, these, you know, our urban planners meet with 15 to 30 people a day and every single one of them has a customized problem and those customized problems can take five minutes or they can take two hours and you have to be able to solve that. You have to be able to solve that load every single day for an entire month. And at the end of the month, they may, might have seen hundreds of people if, or the entire office might have seen thousands of people. Right. And what that would actually do, you know, to humanize like the kind of work that we're doing. And then people wouldn't, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, the city processes couldn't move faster, but just show um, people and give them an understanding of like how long this stuff actually takes. Yeah. Yeah. Who? And then, and then I would be great for city staff as well because, you know, we'd we'd be getting game tape. We'd be getting like, like mm-hmm. um, we'd be able to reflect and be like, okay, last month I was doing, um, I was presenting all this information in a consultation that was, um, just in, inundating whoever I was sitting there with, with all this information, and there was no real logic to how I presented it. Like maybe we should go back and fix that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a good self-reflecting mechanism. It's mm-hmm. also a good, like, um, 
peek into the, the actual inner workings of the reality of the situations in our day to day. And then it's like a great way to magnify like all the cool shit that people are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So who do you follow, uh, either on social media or authors or what do you read? Uh, I guess who would you say influences your thinking the most <laughs> these days? Um, yeah. So this is an interesting, this is fun, fun fact. Like, I'm, I don't really follow urbanists. Okay. No, I don't. Like, I, I'm more interested in, like, marketers because right, they're great storytellers and we're interested in um, like I'm always into been always been into competition and sports like following uh, the UFC because okay. um, they have really cool fun characters and you know I, I did martial arts in college and just um, fascinating to me because it's you're constantly um, building on your craft and you can always get better um, and um, I like I watch a lot of YouTube I watch um, like Joe Rogan and Neil deGrasse Tyson and Sam Harris like the thinkers the philosophers mm-hmm. um, and I kind of use I kind of triangulate like um, between um, philosophy and science and marketing <laughs> okay. at, at, and, and technology like I'm real into technology um, at the moment um, and and some of the more futuristic stuff like artificial intelligence or um, like traveling to space and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, I just I I think this is this one guy. His name is Gary Vaynerchuk. He's oh a, yeah. He's a marketer, um, or he's an entrepreneur, I should say, because he's done a lot of different things. But he's really good at marketing. Um, and he's just so I kind of model my my social media practices after him and he just has a really good outlook and understanding of like going and working putting in the work and hustling and like yeah. um, so I look at the people that yeah I look at entrepreneurs I look at people that are trying to start businesses on their own I look at you know the storytellers mm-hmm. uh, what um, what book or a couple books do you give away most often? Um, uh, my favorite book to give away is How to Win Friends and Influence People. Okay. It's a... And fun fact, he actually just gave me a copy <laughs> of this. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to be reading that in the next few weeks. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a sinister sounding title. Like How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know, like some kind of Jedi mind trick or something. But it's more of like an educational understanding about how to work with people. Um, this guy, Dale Carnegie, Carnegie or Carnegie, however you want to pronounce it. Um, like he just um, interviewed a bunch of thought leaders and um, um, people that had, you know, put together really good companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was back in the 1937, I think it was published, um, like post pretty shortly post-depression uh, yeah. days. Yeah. So um, we're talking like old school um, entrepreneurs like the Fords and the Carnegie's of the world, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah. Which is... Uh, 
Yeah, so it's definitely stood the test of time. Oh, it's it's yeah, perennial mm-hmm. for sure. Like it's it's still relevant today. Like my father read it, his his grandfather or his father probably read it. My grandfather, so it's just one of those books that it's just um, evergreen content, right? Where you're just gonna read it, and it's gonna make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred years from now. So it's just principles like about how to act and how to work with people. Just mm-hmm. um, yeah. People are uh, good to get along with. <laughs> I give that book away. Um, what are some other good books? I don't know. I like science fiction, so um, I like giving away the like Isaac Asimov stuff. Oh yeah. Um, I also like J.D. Salinger. Oh, um, okay. I have a background in creative writing. I like I liked his stuff a lot. Um, I like Nine Stories more than I liked Catcher in the Rye. I recommend nine stories. Um, so, what is uh, what is one absurd thing that you love to do? Um, <laughs> um, absurd. What do you mean by absurd? Or am I supposed to define that? That's whatever um, you want. Great. <laughs> I'm I'm a fanatic timekeeper, like I calendar all the time. Um, I have a bunch of calendars posted on my wall currently. Mm-hmm. Like, and just, and I'm looking at these, and they're unlike pretty much any calendars that I've ever seen. Um, you've got a few up for 2017, where uh, it, it looks like kind of a spreadsheet with months listed in the. Uh, as columns, mm-hmm. so the days go down the columns, mm-hmm. um, which looks like a much better system than, <laughs> than most other calendars. And the grid, and like yeah. the seven days, like in these columns, and weird. a lot of post-it notes to keep track of weeks. So. Well, you know what? Like I, I, I don't know if it's absurd because like, there's a kind of a reasoning behind it, but um, yeah, I it's like self-analytics, honestly. It's mm-hmm. a way to track what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, and to keep improving but there's actually a story as to why this started oh yeah <laughs> yeah oh yeah um back in the days like when I was uh, freelancing you know um I was also applying for jobs like while I was freelancing because I was like in that space of like do I go back into the 9 to 5 do I keep freelancing and I got I interviewed with this one company um uh, for a strategist position and the lady that was interviewing me looked at my resume and the like pretty much the first question the first comment in the interview was like look you don't have the skills on your resume to be a strategist and that struck me because I'd been um, doing a lot of other things that weren't just on my resume it was just one piece of paper and how do you represent everything or the culmination of your entire life on an eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper right um, so that was like fine. Um, I'm going to um, create a bunch of different uh, trajectories and a bunch of different avenues for tracking all of the work that I'm doing that does not exist on my resume. Yeah. Um, so I started um, 2013 was the first year I started this thing called List of Stuff. It's a monthly 
list um, that I put out on Medium. Okay. And it just was what I was interested in, you know? Kind of back to, like, what if Jane Jacobs... What if we knew what she was reading, and what if she knew? What if we knew who she was looking into and who she was studying? Like so, I, I kind of had um, that thought at the same time of the thought of like you don't have the skills on your resume. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just wanted to start tracking what I was looking into, and um, I started a medium blog that I do every month now to show what I the ideas and things that I've looked into, um, and that turned into. Um, tracking how I was doing storytelling on Instagram and um, my workout schedules like um, and then like, all the bills and all the conferences that are coming up and events that are happening and so um, seems great I, I, I've been uh, wanting to start newslettering and kind of sharing what I'm reading and mm-hmm. uh, all the kind of inputs that I'm taking in um, but it's, it's cool to see you having done that for, for so long. And, and it really adds up. It does add up. And it's all posted on the internet. Mm-hmm. So if anybody ever tells me, like, you don't have the skills on your resume for this position, I'll be like, okay, here's <laughs> these seven other links that you can look at to see what other skills I have. Right. That's great. And, and then, I mean, and I'm at the point now where I don't even care about that anymore. Mm-hmm. Because it's it's morphed into this brand, right? It's morphed into this. You get daily or you get monthly updates on what I'm doing. Like I have. Um, it has helped me to focus in on what I like to talk about and think about. Um, you know, urban planning, technology, and mixed martial arts, <laughs> or um, or storytelling, and yeah. Yeah. So for urban technology and black, or sorry. Planning, yeah. urban planning, technology, mixed martial arts. Um, uh, this seems like a good good time to plug uh, some of your social media accounts uh, if anyone wants to follow. Yeah. Um, so your username it, on most things. It looks like you got uh, it's the same on everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so at Patrick M O two L and. Uh, I just saw on LinkedIn you the O2L. O2L. So, um, yeah, the so the moniker Patrick M zero two L or zero two Lima um, that goes all the way back to the beginning of my history in the internet. Like that was the very first name that I chose as a as a handle for the very first internet service that I signed up yeah. for. So what does zero two Lima mean? Zero Two Lima is the um, is the it's the code for a saxophone player in the army. Alright. So Patrick M. Patrick McDonald, saxophone player. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah that's so what it is. What you were when you were in the army? When was that? Uh, nineteen ninety nine. Okay. And it was when I yeah nice. first joined. Right. So yeah, in nineteen ninety nine, when I got my very first email. Had to choose a handle, and it stuck. Patrick M zero two L, and just stuck throughout the entirety of my internet existence. It works. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll <laughs> still haven't heard you play the saxophone. Might have to <laughs> see if I can get some of that. But um, yeah, is there anything else you want to plug? Um, 
So at Patrick M02L on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, GitHub, Medium, all over the internet. Yep. Um, and as I said, you are constantly producing uh, wonderful things. Um, Content, yeah. Yeah, Instagram. Uh, your Instagram feed is one of my favorites. Uh, so I mean, yeah. It's really good. This past year, I realized that Instagram is basically a mini YouTube. Yeah. So I'm transitioning a lot of my just just grams, my um, images, and into being more videos, more like mini stories. So um, I I like it as a medium. I think it's I like the mobile aspect of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, with that, um, I think we can end this conversation. But I'm fairly confident that with all of your online activity and posting that. The conversation is far from over. There's so much more. <laughs> it's so much bigger. All right. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Since Patrick and I talked, his temporary position with the city of Austin has ended. He has moved on to Anchorage, Alaska, where he's working for the city there as a design strategist on the innovation team. Patrick, thanks again so much for both this conversation and for putting me up on your couch and giving me a great tour of Austin when I visited. Anyone visiting Anchorage should definitely get in touch with Patrick. Nobody gives city tours like he can. As we talked about, Patrick is to be found pretty much anywhere online at PatrickM02L, and that includes his newest platform of choice, Anchor, where he's broadcasting his almost daily updates as short audio snippets. Download Anchor on the App Store and tune into Patrick there. It's a lot of fun. This episode is the last of two pilot episodes for this podcast. I'd like to share more stories of great people doing good work in the public sector, and I'd love to know what you think about it so far. If you like what you hear, please send a quick tweet to me at thisisgovernment, and that's abbreviated to at thisisgvmnt, or an email to thisisgovernmentpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Once again, I'm Grayson Wright, and this is Government. Thanks for listening.